This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host David Holloway and it's great as always to be here with you. And it's always great to have my roving and non-raving co-host Paul Bindig with me again for this episode. How's things Paul? Really good, thanks Dave and uh, really pleased to be back. Yeah, I was going to say we've missed you. I know you've been busy, um, but it, yeah, it's, it's definitely excellent to have you on board, um, particularly to wrangle our next guest. So today we have Mr. Samuel Lupowitz on the show, uh, and he doesn't actually need any wrangling. He's a brilliant guy. I love Samuel's description of his own music when you look at his bio, and he, uh, I quote, rock and soul revivalism with elements of jazz, blues, and Americana. I mean, that alone's enough to make him an interesting guest, but he's also had an interesting career both as a keyboard player and as a podcaster, which, Paul, I think you'd agree is a deadly combination. Well, he must be a champion if he's a keyboard player and a podcaster, surely. They're a rare rare and elite breed. Indeed. (laughs) Um, I think you'll enjoy this interview as much as we enjoyed recording it. So here we go. Sam, you're a dedicated man. It's 8am in the morning there. How the hell do you do this thing at this time of day? Uh, well, I, I got to tell you, um, since I haven't had any gigs to go to and, you know, I haven't been out at bars carrying gear out to my car at one in the morning, I've been <laughs> going to bed and waking up pretty early. There's no, nothing to interrupt my, I think, my my normal biological rhythm. So <laughs> this yeah, is, I've been awake. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're not a morning person, so it actually works out for us being on opposite sides of it the globe here. Yeah, it worked extremely well. Yes, it's 10, 10 p.m. for me here and uh, for Paul slightly earlier. So, yeah, but we're loving it. Uh, Oh yeah, I was I was asleep at 10 p.m. last night because yeah, I don't, don't have anywhere to be. <laughs> That's right, and so that probably answers the question um, that I've been starting off with the last few episodes, which is how things are going for you right at the moment with, you know, uh, COVID nineteen and so on. So, you, aside from getting back to your normal body clock, are you keeping busy? I, I am keeping busy. My my wife and I just bought a house uh, about I guess two months ago now, close a month and a half. Um, so we've been moving in and and getting set up the last few weeks. Um, and it's been a nice sort of uh, grounding thing to focus on, working in the yard and unpacking boxes and painting. Uh, you know, getting instruments set up and getting our studio together when the world is kind of on fire everywhere. And my my little corner of central new york state uh 
has been handling COVID very well. So we've been going through the phases of reopening kind of gradually. We're still trying to be very careful. Um, but, you know, we've been having friends come over and sit in the driveway with acoustic guitars yeah, at a distance cool. and that sort of thing. And so that's been uh, it's let off a little bit of the pressure uh, of of the madness. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a crazy time. We're doing our best. <laughs> no, good stuff. And uh, we'll definitely be talking about your little corner of New York State in a little while. Um, but first, I, I thought we might do what we usually do, and that's get you to give us a bit of a potted history of your sort of upbringing and what led you to getting into music to the extent that you have. Sure. Um, I'm, I grew up in a sort of rural suburban area of, of Pennsylvania, uh, not too far from Philadelphia. Um, my, my parents, neither of my parents were serious musicians, but everyone in my family enjoyed music and, you know, dabbled and, you know, my, my mom sang and they both, you know, played instruments a little bit. So it was one of those things like we got a piano and I was going to take lessons and I, I always kind of took to it. Um, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was about maybe 11 years old and I discovered the Beatles in my dad's car and, you know, became obsessed as many, you know, it's not a, uh, an uncommon story that people hear the Beatles and then dedicate themselves to music, but that's what happened to me too. But it is, it uh, is different. Sorry, just before you go, it is different in that you're not discovering the Beatles when they're around the first time around. Sure. So, so I'm actually interested there. What was it about the Beatles that stood out for you given by that stage? And I'm not even going to guess at your date of birth, but they've been around a solid <laughs> 20, 25 years before you're actually discovering them. What, what oh, was yeah. it that stood out? Well, I, I mean, I think it was all the the combination of of groove and and melody and uh, you know I I just remember hearing you know so my my dad got a car that had a CD player in it and it was my parents were never like the best at keeping on top of the newest technology <laughs> so I think everyone else had had CDs for a good like seven years in their cars by the time this was so then my dad started buying all this music he liked on CD and playing it in the car so that was when I started hearing a lot of this music um <laughs> and uh I just remember him dropping me off at school or something and and I think I feel fine was the one okay. that uh just like latched into my brain and wouldn't let go all day and that was sort of it after that I was uh just really hooked on it um and and I was lucky enough also that my piano teacher was a, a multi-instrumentalist and an obsessive Beatles fan. So while I might have sort of petered out at my, you know, I was never the best at my lessons of, I was never a uh, particularly disciplined practicer and I, I wasn't uh, that drawn to developing. Technically, I was easily distracted. <laughs> uh, but once he knew how much I was enjoying the Beatles, he would he started to show me, oh, well, let me show you how to play the chords to let it be. And that's really how I started to learn theory and how songs are constructed and how to figure things out by ear beyond just picking out melodies. Um, and, you know, then when I started playing bass, he taught me bass and it was I, I owe a lot to my musical early musical education and understanding because I had that teacher who was open to the music that I was excited by, which not all of my friends who took piano lessons had that. And I, yeah. I count myself very lucky. 
Yeah, so so thanks to to Dad for the CD player and a great teacher. So I'll, I'll let you get back to the history. So you, you're at school, you've got a good teacher. Uh, how does it progress from there? Um, I, 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 at a certain point, absorbing all the Beatles songs as a as a you know young teenager, I started doing a lot of kind of piano bar type gigs, except not bars because I was you know. 13, 14. Uh, so kind of anywhere that I could sit at a piano and get in front of people and play, all, you know, Beatles songs and Elton John and Billy Joel, those were, you know, what I got really into early on. Uh, and then started playing bass and started putting my first bands together. And some of those were, you know, friends who are still some of my closest friends to this day and people I collaborate with are, you know, friends from middle school who were in my first you know, a couple of bands. Um, and because I was a bass player, that was really growing up. I became the bass player because every band needed a bass player. The school jazz band needed one. It was always either guitarists who were the worst of the guitar players and couldn't read music, or sometimes there were orchestral players around and they were very, they read music and were from a classical background. But at that early age, there weren't a lot of them who were improvising and, you know, would follow along with chord changes. So I became a really in-demand bass player and sort of played keyboards as a writing tool and every now and then would still do solo stuff. But uh, I always liked being in a band the best. I loved collaborating with other people and I loved rhythm sections and uh, that's always been my favorite thing. Yeah. So so I did a lot of that, um, but when I, when I got to college, I, I for a while I was I was writing a musical and uh, that was you know I, I was going in that direction sort of as writing for the theater being my goal and um, you know wrote a, a show and staged it a couple of times in early college and uh, really burned out on it and wanted to get back to just being able to jump in front of people and perform my music instead of having to deal with the, the the many, many moving pieces that were involved in putting on a, a stage mm -hmm. production. Yeah. Uh, and because I had had to write music for what I, who, people that I considered real piano players, because <laughs> I, I was, you know, insecure about it. Like, oh yeah, I can look at some chords and hammer out some stuff, but like, I'm not a real piano player like these people. Uh, and, uh, you know, then would find like when I wrote down my, quote unquote, simple piano parts, people couldn't read them because <laughs> they were, they were apparently they were hard for piano well, players can. who could play things that I'd never dream of playing. Um, I'd been working on my piano playing again. And, and as a band, as a bass player in a band, I had always been writing at the piano and then trying to find a way to arrange what my hands were doing on the piano for a bass and two guitars. Uh, and, and I wanted to just be able to be in a band for once where I just sat at the piano and played the song like I wrote it and then have a rhythm section to back me up. So I started doing that in college and that was the beginning of, uh, Samuel B. Lupowitz and the Ego Band, which was, I started as a little like Ben Folds Five kind of piano trio. And then every musician I met who liked what we did, I just kind of pulled them into the band. So for, by the time I sort of stopped doing solo stuff. I, you know, it was a nine piece band with a horn section and two, three singers. And, uh, you know, I was still like, like when I wrote for the theater, I was writing arrangements for the horns and the vocalists yeah. and, uh, I, and I loved it. So, uh, that was sort of 
end of college, uh, I went to college in Ithaca, New York, and because I was starting to gig there, uh, I got really involved in the local music scene, which for a small town that's kind of far away from any major cities, because we have Ithaca College, which is a pretty big liberal arts school here, and Cornell University, which is a, a big mm-hmm. Ivy League school, um, there's a, a lot of musicians and arts and other kind of cultural opportunities that a town this size wouldn't normally have. So we have a big active music scene uh, and I got involved and then I really started to get called to play keys on people's stuff because that's what people knew me as. I was the piano player who fronted his own band. So um, uh, I started doing more kind of keyboard player for higher stuff and joined some bands and got a lot better at playing Hammond organ and synthesizers and uh, yeah, so that <laughs> that's sort of the, the yeah. journey to where I am now, which is I live in town. I, I have a few bands that are my own and, and kind of do one-offs and sessions and side gigs as I can and still trying to, to write music because I, I still think of myself sort of as a, as a songwriter mm-hmm. first, but uh, kind of anything creatively as a musician that I get to do uh, is is what I like to do. So Sam, I'm, I'm really interested in exploring a little bit about uh, your relationship with the amazing lead vocalist in ah, yes. the Ego Band and also in the other band, Noon 15, mm-hmm. yeah, which, is, Noon which 15. is Mandy and obviously mm-hmm. your wife. And I'm really interested in, I guess, the story of how you met. Was that through music or did that come later? And, and how has that collaboration worked for you guys? Sure, absolutely. So, so Mandy and I met. We met in college, uh, and we actually we met in a uh, history and analysis of American musical theater class. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was most of the students who took that were like musical theater performance students who had to take it. And then mm-hmm. there were maybe three of us who just took it because we wanted to know about the history of American musical theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was early in the morning. And the musical theater students were uh, always coming in early, bright and bushy-tailed, and all trying to belt louder than everyone else. Uh, <laughs> and and so I was the person who who annoyed Mandy the least in the class. <laughs> and so we sat next to each other in class, and and you know became friends a little bit. Um, and then I, bumped into each other. I think the following semester and I was then I had been seeing someone else, but I was single then and we uh, we hit it off and we've been together for uh, it'll be next next year. It'll be 10 years. We've been together. Congratulations. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, so, yeah, that was we met at school and we had actually we were we were both sort of music people. She had done a ton of theater growing up and her track was sort of Broadway. Like a lot of her close friends went that track and she realized that she was sort of miserable in that environment of very, like everyone trying to get ahead of everyone else and a lot of pressure for perfection. Uh, So she didn't go that route. And I was invested in music, but wanted to be more of a songwriter and creative person and, and didn't take the route of, you know, studying at the conservatory, I just sort of took all the theory classes and arranging classes I could and applied it to my own thing. So when we, after we got together, you know, we were, I was starting to gig and she hadn't been really performing herself for a while and, uh, started, you know, she would sit in and sing a song with my band. And then she was singing a couple of, uh, 
you know, featured lead vocals and singing harmonies on everything. Um, and then by the time the ego band was wrapping up, she was really the, the co-lead vocalist of that band. You know, the second record we did, the first record is more of a solo record, but the second one is more of a band where she and I both sang. Um, and so when we put that aside, it was, you know, she was starting to write songs. Um, and so noon 15 was really born out of us wanting to do something that would be a collaborative effort and not, you know, there was something that didn't feel quite right. Look what we wanted for our partnership, for her to be the singer in my band. We wanted to have something that was ours. Um, so that was, um, I guess 2015, 2016 in there was when we formed noon 15 together with uh some really close friends who we had played music with and the idea of that band was really to like by that point we had kind of cut out the all the the assholes who <laughs> you know not that there were many assholes but we had figured out like oh we we know the people we like to play music with and spend time with uh, and we will you know we really want it to be about that about people we love working on music we're proud of together um you know we had gotten past the part where we were like grubbing for anyone who could play like please please come play in our band and yep. like yep. treat it like enough of a priority to show up on time and not give me lame excuses when we're supposed to be at rehearsal and you're not there that sort of thing oh, <laughs> um, no, and that's so important isn't it sam and look in, in australia we have a word for that we call that the no dickhead rule so you very have no good. Dickhead rule that's, i like that a lot yeah we we've definitely uh established that at this point yeah, um, and we, that's sort of been where we've been at with our little community of musicians who you know we all everyone we know is involved in a number of projects because we're all uh though i think we all really see ourselves as professional musicians because we go out and do it for money we all have other jobs uh and many of us have have we're all we all have partners and many of us have young children uh, mandy and i don't but a lot of our collaborators do uh, and yeah, so we we wanted to build something where all of that would be respected and taken as a whole and we could still have our creative outlet. And because it's, you know, it's hard to to be an original band. We go out and do covers gigs sometimes and those pay a little better. But, um, you know, we didn't want to have to. We, we needed to find a balance of being able to write and play the music that we loved with people that we loved without the pressure of like, oh, if these if the songs we're writing aren't pay, paying people's cable bills, uh, yeah. we got to find new people or we got to give up. So we didn't want that pressure leaning on us. We just wanted to be able to make the best art we could. So that's been sort of the journey there. Yeah, it really frees you up creatively that way, too, doesn't it? You can explore what you want to explore without those other pressures closing. I love it. And and my my day gig, I do uh, I do a lot of AV and recording work um, at the Language Center at, at Cornell. Yeah. Uh, and it's been have, having that job has been liberating for my music because it's given me a lot, a, a lot of on the job training and access to tools that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, and it's been really great for my, you know, as I start wearing more and more hats, you know, singing and playing keys and recording the band and mixing more. And, you know, as I take all that on, it's been great to have, uh, a, a job that 
helps me grow in that direction rather than just feels like a time suck, which I, I had a few day jobs before I wound up at Cornell that were really just like trading my time for being able to eat. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally understood. I'm wondering, Sam, are there any, I mean, obviously being uh, being married to and living with your your major music collaborator, are there ever times that that brings in challenges where you just sometimes have to walk away from, from the project for a while or each go in your own different direction and get some space or, or does it work pretty smoothly most of the time? It does work pretty smoothly, but you know, we do, we've had to learn over the years of what, where to set boundaries as far as, you know, which uh, there are differences in the relationship between two bandmates and between a husband and wife. And we, you know, we have a lot of, of intersection there, but we also know, you know, we've learned how to be respectful and listen to each other and give each other what we need. Uh, and also to respect each other's space and let us go off and do other things and not try to be, no, every, everything has to be for our band. Um, you know, I, I play in a number of other projects. Um, the more Mandy's been writing, she's been working on some solo material for, for songs that feel like they belong outside Noon 15. Um, and, you know, we, we always feel like the more things we do, it's all stuff that we can bring back to the center when we do things together. So it's, I won't say it's been uh, completely without ups and downs, but uh, we're a good team. And, and so it's much more fun to be able to do music together than if we weren't doing that. Uh, Cause that was, uh, that was a priority I made, you know, there was a, a point there sort of after the ego band uh, stopped being a, a regular project for me where I, I joined a, a touring band and we weren't, they would go on uh, kind of, you know, 10 day stretches or the most they'd be out on the road would be a month. Uh, and I wasn't a part of that very long. I, I just sort of learned pretty quickly that, you know, if I if I'm going to be putting all of my time and energy into something, I want it to be with my favorite collaborator and my partner. And so that's what I, I started prioritizing. Well, and, you know, as a, as a piece of really honest feedback it definitely comes across how much fun you guys have doing the noon 15 project and oh well, good thank you no it really does and uh, just a note to our, to our listeners if you get an opportunity please check out uh, any video that you can find for noon 15 on the youtube uh they're just a fun fun band and they, they play great music and it just that, that joy really comes across sam so it's, yeah. it's really good thank you so much yeah it was like i said so much of that band was uh, the there was a direction we wanted to go in musically but also the concept was to be having fun with people that we had fun playing music with so i'd say for all all five of us uh it really helps what we do that we just like hanging out together uh whether or not we have our instruments on so yeah fantastic have you got any other you sort of alluded to there was some other projects that that you and mandy were both working on but is there anything specifically you're you're working on now musically maybe outside of noon 15 as well uh, so the other the other project that I'm the primary keyboard player for uh, is a band called uh, Through Spectrums, which is sort of a, a prog funk rock band, um, and that's led by by Joe Massa, who's the guitarist in Noon Fifteen, uh, along with kind of every other project I'm involved in at this point. I, his, I like to joke that he's he's in my rider. Like I don't tend to play <laughs> gigs unless Joe is there on guitar. Um, and that was uh, a band that I joined back in 2014 after I, I played on a couple of songs on their second record. Uh, and then I was a full member by the time they did the third one. Um, but uh, it's been these last couple of years that band has had a really steady lineup after a number of shifts. Uh, and we're, we have our, our third, our fourth record um, 
all mixed now and we're looking to release that in a couple of months uh, and i'm really excited about it it's the first time that that band has created something where it's been the same group of people all writing all the music recording it the album's going to come out and it'll be that band playing it uh and it's a really fun band a lot of really you know uh, complex compositions um and you know sort of influenced by parliament funkadelic and the red hot chili peppers and mars volta and and weird stuff but danceable uh and that's the band the first band i was ever in where i really got to stretch out and was like all right hammond organ clavinet synthesizers so just all about adding textures since uh the core of the band was so guitar led um coming from a background in singer songwriter piano playing i love that i'm now in projects where uh i can switch between sort of playing keyboard parts that are the glue of the song and also being more of an orchestration and adding yeah. colors and and sounds around the main core of the arrangement so yeah, yeah that's great um and just around you you've mentioned this lovely corner of new york state you're in sam um your last um album with the ego band was essentially a concept album on Ithaca. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit um, how your location has impacted your development as a musician? I mean, you've mentioned about, you know, being close to Cornell and, and so on, but there are other aspects of that area that you think have had an influence? Sure. Well, like I said, there's a, a really, this is a town that has a really active music scene and is proud of its music scene. Um, but also, I really got, to, I kind of grew up here. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up in this area, but I came here for college, you know, so sort of as I, as I uh, grew into an adult, uh, I, I feel like being here really helped shape my perception of the world as a grown up rather than how I saw the world as a child. Um, and it's a place that, like I said, it's got a lot of, cultural opportunities of a big city, but it's really a very rural area. It has a definite small town feel. Um, and sometimes it takes itself way too seriously for that. But also I love living in a place where people are so invested in their community and so proud of their town. Um, so I was, you know, these are all things I was thinking about as I was writing those songs. Uh, and I didn't, I, I started writing a lot of those songs before it became a concept album, but I started to look at it and see, oh, these songs are all sort of about, you know, me coming of age. And, and there were, you know, there's a song on that record about the first apartment I lived in after I graduated, which was a, you know, horrible house that was falling <laughs> apart, but I was so excited to be living out on my own for the first time. Uh, and it just all seemed to have that sort of vibe. Um, and even some of the more political songs I was doing were, certainly influenced by there's there's a lot of um political uh, activity and awareness around here um and it all sort of went into a stew and and uh you know if you're gonna spend what, a year and a half making a record i i like it to feel like one piece so so yeah. i was really uh, excited and proud to to make that record about my adopted hometown you know, uh, and I guess when I started it, I wasn't sure if I was going to be uh, a long term resident here. But we've since put down roots and I'm uh, I, I'm I like that little slice of where I was in you know, 2014, 2015 when I made that record. Yeah, no, excellent.
Sam, I'm really interested in the the podcasting work that you do, uh, specifically as it relates to Noon Fifteen and Noon Fifteen. Oh yeah, have, have a have a great podcast that they that they do, and and I'm just curious in, I guess the decision making thought process around what what made you guys decide to do that, and how has it gone in terms of has it provided benefits for the band, um, and you know, inquiring minds want to know, we may all be copying you, all of us in the bands, to see if this uh, really works for us. Well, it's, either, yeah, that, sure. it's either that or it's the quality of your voice and everything. I'm just thinking whether you should take over the podcast. So consider it an interview. <laughs> Could be, so I'm out. I'm on the way no, out. Me Sounds too. Like. Not just you, me too. I'm just going <laughs> to hand it over. <laughs> oh well, well, thank you. Um, I I I love just getting to listen to your podcast. But hey, I'll I'll pop in any any time that you're up late and I'm up early. I'll, I'm happy to come talk to keyboard players all day. Um, but as far as as far as the Noon Fifteen podcast, again, when we were starting that band, it was sort of you know we'd been active musically in a lot of creative projects. Uh, all of you know our our bass player in Noon Fifteen is also an a, amazing singer songwriter multi-instrumentalist in his own right harry nichols um joe our guitar player like i said also is the leader of another band that we're both in like we've all we've we've been down the road um of being like an independent band that you know we're not a national touring band we mostly play locally and regionally and travel occasionally so we've all done the thing where we spend you know two years making a record and spend a ton of money that we don't necessarily make at our gigs to get a bunch of nice looking CDs pressed. And, uh, you know, my first solo record, I, uh, I think I've, I got a thousand CDs made and I'm looking at the, the shelf behind me <laughs> of, you know, the two rows of, of songs to make you wealthier and more attractive that I still have on, on CD, especially doing this as CDs become less and less relevant as a medium. Um, so when we started noon 15, we were looking for some new interesting ways to get our music out that weren't just following the, the rule book for if you're an indie musician, this is what you do to get your music out. Uh, we were particularly influenced by bands like, Wolfpack, who seemed to be breaking all the rules and just doing what was fun for them, even though they didn't have the the technical know-how or, or just any any right to do things the way that they were doing them and succeeding anyway. Um, so the podcast came about because I am such a liner notes junkie and I like to know everything about every track and every decision on albums I like, uh, and I'm always chasing that. So I, I was trying to think about how, in, in an age where there aren't so many liner notes, how do you get that information out there for people who are interested? And I don't know if people are interested in that for me, but it's what I would want from a band I liked. Hmm. Uh, and around that time, I had, when Noon 15 was working on our first EP, um, my brother and a, a co-worker I was very close friends with were both really into podcasts. And, and my brother said to me, you know, I don't listen to a lot of music when I'm in my car, you know, driving to meetings for work. I, I listen to podcasts. So I think your your band should do a podcast and that's how you should get your music out there. Uh, my friend was saying comedians have taken such advantage of the podcast medium as a way to get themselves out there. And I, I, he's, I, I think musicians should be doing it too. There's no reason not to. Uh, so all these things were swirling around and, and so we decided to try it out. And when we did the first record, we had, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Dan Cole, who, who hosted a local radio show about, uh, 
local musicians here for many years to, to sort of host. And we just talked track by track about the record and released each one as a podcast episode. And I got so into putting it together and getting to show, oh yeah, here's, you know, if you listen to this keyboard part isolated, it sounds like this. And, oh, you know, we based this song around the drum groove and here are the isolated drums and here's the story behind the lyrics. It's, it's something that actually happened to me and Mandy and we wrote it about this. And, um, so that was really fun. And also it became a way to kind of show off the band's camaraderie because we're all friends and we love to joke around with each other. And that's, I think a big part of who we are as musicians uh, is that dynamic. Uh, and it was a way to present that way without, you know, interrupting the flow of our live shows and talking half the time, uh, which is a thing I've had to reel in over the years, uh, especially when I was playing solo shows uh, every now and then the horn section would start looking over at me like, OK, we we get it, Billy Joel. Like you've you've got a story about the song. Like, Can we play, please? <laughs> um yeah, so so we did that. We did the podcast for the volume one. Um, and I don't know how much it's gained us of more of a following, uh, but it's definitely gotten a response from people who might not normally have checked out our album and who were really interested in all those things, like who liked hearing the stories and and getting the context of who the band is and and how they do what we do. Mm. Um, so it's been a really fun thing for me to continue doing. Um, and I'm, you know, my philosophy about music over the last few years has really, you know, in a time when we can access any music we want with the touch of a button, understanding the process, that the process is the product. Uh, the process isn't what results in a product that you just listen to for three minutes and then that's all it is. It's about all the things that go into creating it. And that's what's always excited me. Uh, so this is a way for me to show off what our process is and, and, uh, you know, all of the, the movement that results in a finished recording of a song. No, I think that's great. And I, I can see that, I can see that as being something that is going to increasingly catch on. You don't see a lot of that with albums, but I, with the growth in podcasting, I can see we'll see a lot more of it. So, you know, make sure you keep that claim of being one of the pioneers. All right. I will, I will try to do yeah. that. Yeah. It's our, our most recent, it's not really our most recent album with Noon 15, but we're we are we're we've been working on uh, what will be an album as sort of a serial project since then. So we've been releasing songs every couple of months that will all fit together as sort of a concept album, but uh, it won't be apparent until you hear them all in the final running order. Uh, and the podcast has been a really cool way, along with YouTube, to get those individual songs out in a way that's interesting and. Uh, has some weight to it beyond just audio that shows up in Spotify. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, get to get our music out into people's feeds, but then there's also sort of a, a large form work at the end. I've been really excited by that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great stuff. So let's talk a little bit about gear. So, um, sure, uh, we you know have some guests that are reluctant to talk gear. I don't get the impression that'll be the case with yourself, Sam. But oh God, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So t talk about your main pieces of gear. You know what? Why you've chosen them? I noticed when we had a a quick uh, video um, catch up just before the show that I saw a was it a computer monitor with the Kruma logo logo on yes. it? 
So, yes, well, I've, so I've just got, anyway, hit, hit us with the details. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I've. It's been very dangerous. You know, when I was mostly playing bass. Sure, there are always new toys you can get, but there's a little more of a limit to what you need on stage with you. Uh, and I've been playing the same Fender jazz bass for years, and it does everything I need it to, even if I might want some more fun, flashy toys. But with keyboards, uh, there's just no end to the things you can add to your palette. Uh, and it's been very dangerous because I've I've developed a reputation for uh, bringing a lot of things to gigs. <laughs> um, I've always been a big fan of kind of classic you know, electromechanical mm. keyboard sounds. Um, growing up, as I did listening to the Beatles and a lot of other music from the 60s and 70s and classic rock and R&B and funk music and soul music. Um, so once I started branching out from just being a piano player and I, you know, gigging more pretty much just with, uh, you know, a stage piano, um, I've got a, a couple, uh, an interesting mix of old and new in my rig that I use in different combinations for different projects. But, um, kind of my main baby that I've been using since I got it a few years ago is a, a Wurlitzer 200 electric piano. Um, and that's become really kind of my main keyboard sound along with, uh, along with Hammond organ for noon 15. Um, and I, I love it. I've always loved the sound of the Wurlitzer, uh, you know, hearing Ray Charles and, uh, Ian McLagan with the faces like that was always, I always liked Rhodes too, but yeah. there's something about the sound of the Wurlitzer and that bite that just connected with me. And then the first time I got to play a real one, the, the way the keyboard felt connected yeah. with me. So that's been a real pride and joy of mine since I snapped it up. That was a, a wonderful gift from my wife and a few friends. She got to crowdsource, uh, we got we found a guy in in Rochester who was getting rid of a Wurlitzer and got a great deal. So I've been lugging that to gigs uh, in a road case, which is uh, not, you know, yeah. my back can still do it. <laughs> we'll see. But since we've been building a home studio, I might uh, I might leave it yeah. to stay put a little more often now. But so I love my Wurlitzer. Um, the. Other kind of vintage piece that I have is uh, a clavinet D6, which I got from uh, my my guitarist Joe. His father was and is a gigging keyboard player, um, and has a lot of nice old toys. I, I took some piano lessons from from Neil Massa for a number of years, and he said to me at a certain point, "You know, I've got my old clavinet just sitting in storage, wow. and I'm not taking it to gigs anymore." If you uh, if you can get it working again, you can gig with it as much as you want. Uh, so it took you know quite a few techs and a lot of tweaking, but uh, I I did get it working and uh, I've been gigging with it and recording with it for five or six years now. And it was another instance of that. You know, I, there are great clavinet samples and patches out there that sound awesome and. They make me perfectly happy until I play the real thing, and uh, it, there's just nothing like it. You, as soon as I I start I played it the first time, I just understood. Oh, that's why Stevie Wonder always played those kinds of songs on it because it wants to be played that way. Um, yeah. The first time I I took it out to a gig, and you know I didn't have a. It's like me and a friend with a blanket wrapped around it, carrying it into this 
gross bar that we all had played in and I'm setting it up and I played it through like a crappy travel PA system. It wasn't even a good amp, but there was this one song where I took a solo on the clav and at the end, you know, I ended on some high note and I, you know, stepped on the wah pedal hard and that high note at the end of the solo started to feed back and everyone in the crowd went, yay. And I said, (laughs) Oh, this is why guitar players walk around like they're cooler than everybody else. This is amazing. So I love the clav um, and it is such a pain to keep maintained, but it is so worth it. Uh, and you need so to put are, a whammy are, bar. Where's the whammy bar? Sam? Oh my God. Yeah. Right. The next time I've got, especially now that I bought a house, I'm just like, yeah, I'll have another, <laughs> you know, couple grand lying around to do some mods on my clavinet now and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it something, and I, I know you know why I've asked that because I know you listened to the Lockheed Dolly episode. Is it something that oh, actually yeah. would suit your musical style anyway? Like, oh, would, yeah. Oh, I, would? Would, I okay. would get so into that. Okay, there you um, go. It's, I, I love over the top stuff like that. And I'm, you know, as a player, like I said, I'm not the most disciplined uh, practicer, I'm always trying to get better. Um, but, you know, I'm not, my technical facility is not you know, the greatest of all the keyboard players I've met. I, I've always sort of balanced that out by by uh, having some s- sort of feel and, and uh, I don't know, I think I have a, a style and a sound and a feel that sounds like me. And that's, uh, you know, that can take a long time to find. And I'm, I'm proud of that. So things like that, uh, like a whammy bar and, and anything that lets me get a little more expressive and, and, uh, flashy showmanship wise, but also just musically adding a little spice to things. That's I, I go wild over it. That's why I bought a seaboard, which is a, another thing that, you know, t- I have to make sure I don't talk about gear for too long because <laughs> we all have places to be, but um, yeah. So I would love a whammy bar on the clav. I don't know if that's in my immediate future, but no. uh, so, so anyway, those are my kind of my, my prize vintage pieces, the, the world and the clavinet. Um, like I said, I'm a big Hammond organ fan and more and more over the past eight or nine years, I've been going from being a piano player who also plays organ sounds to really trying to learn uh, to play the organ as an organist. I'm really influenced by a lot of the people who have influenced me the most are, are gospel players or like Billy Preston, who would bring that like church organ sound uh, into rock music. Uh, and, you know, as sort of a, a suburban agnostic white Jewish kid, um, you know, I just sort of try to take respectfully, uh, learn as much of that from the feet of the masters as I can. Um, so part of that for my 30th birthday, I upgraded my, I'd been playing most of my organ on a Nord Electro 4D, which I mm. loved and it sits right on top of my Wurlitzer and always made me really happy. Um, but, uh, for my 30th birthday, I did get myself a, a Krumar Mojo, a dual manual organ with, you know, two sets of draw bars and I've been hooking my bass pedals up to it and just really trying to, to more and more play organ like an organist and, yeah. and bring that to my music. Uh, so that's been a real treat, especially during quarantine. I've been so glad to have that. Yeah. You know, I've been working through my Hammond organ book and, and working on exercises for two hands and foot pedals and not being very good, but one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. no, that's great. And, um, and I assume as far as when you are playing on stage, you're just um, you're selecting what you need to manually. I mean, obviously, and uh, the Wurlitzer and the um, the clavinet, you would just USB straight into your computer. 
You're right, of course. That's yeah. all, I let it send MIDI CCs, and, uh, that way, and that way they never go out of tune and break. I never have to worry about it. Um, yeah, you, I mean, if you, especially with through spectrums, where, as I said, my role is, is much more about creating a sound palette. Um, my rig's been evolving over the last couple of years as I bring things in and out, but you'll see a, there are a lot of pictures and videos of those bands um, with me. You know, I've got, got the Wurlitzer with... Uh, something stacked on top of it and you know one of the clone wheels and the clavinet and like i'll i often will have a four keyboard rig mm. um and it's a lot of work and sometimes uh after the gig every now and then like oh it would have been great if there had been more people here because i you know it took me <laughs> two hours to set up and now an hour to tear down and uh, but i just i don't know i love it so much i'm so inspired by having these instruments in front of me and and that's yeah. what i People don't really put up a fight, but I maybe get teased by my bandmates a little bit when I'm still setting up and I've been there for an hour before <laughs> they got there. Um, but I'm, it's not really for the audience, though it does look cool to have the real stuff on stage with mm. me. And, and people do comment on that every now and then. But it's for me. I th These instruments respond to the touch differently uh, and in a way that makes me want to play them a certain way, like I said about the clavinet. Um, and and more even than just the sounds, though they sound great, it's something about the feel and the response uh, makes me play better and have more fun. And uh, there's a certain point where if I'm not having fun, this job is not worth the amount of effort it takes mm. to, to do it well, you know? So um, it's worth it to me to haul a few extra pieces if I'm having a blast playing clavinet on stage. Uh, and, you know, not just... I, I've played gigs in smaller places where I'm bringing one or two keyboards and I spend a lot of time stabbing through patch changes. Uh, and in I, I'd rather have one hand on the clav and reach over and play the organ and move down and play some blues licks on the whirly. And that's a real treat for me. Yeah. Um, that said, now that I actually, you know, I'm working on a home studio where I can have all my gear set up at once, as opposed to in the past when the only time I could actually set up all my stuff was at a gig, I may trim down some of my, my gig, uh, load in, load out, depending on the gig, uh, a, a little more often. Yeah. Or just, I <laughs> mean, I, it's, I, I can see fun. I can sympathize with that just from the viewpoint of having to pull it down in the studio to then take it and set it up and then pull it down again. It does yeah. make you rationalize it a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a treat. So that was, yeah, Wurlitzer, organ, clavinet. Um, I've become more and more of a synthesizer guy in the last few years. I sort of stayed away from that sound um, because I, I always sort of associated when I was young synthesizers with the time when my the artists I like from the 60s started making less interesting music. <laughs> uh, but I think that was then I got into, you know, a lot of 70s funk and uh, especially I think it was Snarky Puppy actually I, that made me go, oh, synthesizers can be this incredibly expressive moving instrument. It's not just like a gross pad that I would rather hear a Hammond on. OK, uh, <laughs> so that's been my last few years. I, I've been trying to learn more about synthesis and how to play that sort of thing. Um, but I also uh, uh, I got a, a Seaboard, one of the smaller ones yeah. uh, for Christmas a couple of years ago. And um, that also coincided with me going from being sort of a hardware purist uh, to finally being like, all right, I guess I need to have a tablet or a laptop on stage with me now. 
Um, and so I have been using a lot more main stage and software synthesizers uh, just out of necessity because the Seaboard is just a controller. Yeah. Uh, but it's also let me really expand my sound palette and, you know, add more synthesizer sounds and uh, just have access to to more. Uh, yeah, more a, a wider sonic palette and, and think about my rig in a different way, whereas I I was always sort of, well, that's the piano and that's what I play piano on. And that's the organ and I play organ on that. And, and being very, like I said, being a purist about it. Whereas now it's, oh, well, I can make the organ bass pedals trigger the Moog on this song. And, oh, if I need a Mellotron here, I can do that on the Seaboard. Or, and spreading the sounds around a little bit and learning how to use MIDI in fun ways. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, been a fun journey for me yeah um and live i've been running it all through uh i have a, a motion sound uh kbr 3d oh, yeah. which has uh the uh, rotary uh, horn on the top and then stereo speakers on the bottom that do the this low rotor simulation mm -hmm. and also a clean input for all my other keyboard sounds so i can run the laptop out in stereo to that and it all mixes down to two xlrs and the sound guys like me a lot more than uh <laughs> they have in the past so when there's the band i toured with a couple of years ago briefly um when i joined they had uh, their keyboard player who I replaced had carried a Wurlitzer and a Leslie speaker and like carried a lot of vintage stuff to gigs. So they were just used to it and they had a, a motion sound for me to run through. I, I, they had some band gear that I played through and we'd be rolling into these rat hole clubs with a sound guy who was maybe 17 and the drummer would be <laughs> explaining like, no, 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 it's a Leslie. So you put a mic on top and a mic on the bottom and then you need to put a mic on his amp for the Wurlitzer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an electric piano. And, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I was glad to have him to explain that to the inexperienced sound guys yeah, in that yeah. band, but I'm also glad now to be able to have my real rotary effect on the organ and my keys and stereo and just say to the sound guy, just give me two XLRs. I don't even need That's a right. DI. We're good, but <laughs> yeah. good stuff. Now, excellent summary. You, you, you sort of alluded there, Sam, to some of the interesting trials and challenges and things that that before a touring and gigging keyboard player, mm -hmm. I'm really curious as to, you know, over the years that you've been gigging and obviously doing it quite regularly in a fair few different scenarios, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned or, you know, how have you modified your approach potentially over the journey? Sure. Um, <laughs> the, the first thing that came to mind is uh, to, to, make sure that that i uh that i eat and uh, am relaxed before i play which i uh yep. I, I used to have a rule again this is coming from some of a, a theater background like i didn't want to eat or have any alcoholic beverage you know anything other than water before i played you know because i wanted to be able to sing my best especially when i was doing more lead singing whereas now most of the time I, i'm singing harmonies and backgrounds and the occasional lead but uh, especially then like i know i have to make sure my voice was in tip-top shape and by the time i was going on stage at 10 o'clock i was so cranky and distracted by you know, being hungry and just i tend to get some you know anxiety and nervous energy before playing in front of people no matter yeah. what uh, that I would my I would perform worse because of that than if I had just had a 
piece of pizza before going on stage. Yeah. So I learned that that was, you know, be fed, be watered, do what it takes to be relaxed and to be able to just enjoy the moment. Cause it's so easy, especially if you're playing in bars where, you know, people aren't, some people will come to see you, but people are just out for their night and they're not, mm. you know, paying top dollar to come see your famous band. That's never been the life I've had. Mm. Uh, so to, to, do everything you can to stay in the moment because there are so many distractions. You, you can rowdy patrons and and all kinds of things. There's sports on the TV. So much can you, you know things can go wrong with your gear, and you can spend the gig thinking about what is happening around you instead of just enjoying that you're making music with people for people. Uh, and that's you know an ongoing battle. But I, I think being able to stay in the moment and just mm. uh, enjoy what you're doing and let the music take you and not get pulled out of that is, is, uh, one of the biggest, the biggest journey uh, as far as being able to enjoy gigging. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's probably a beautiful segue to, uh, one of our favorite questions, which is your most memorable train wreck. So when you're not in the moment, Sam, what are, what are some of the more memorable things you, that have gone wrong for you? I thought of a really good one because I knew you were going to ask this question. Um, so this was early on in the days of of the ego band. Um, there was a point when there were, we had two keyboards. Um, I I would play piano and sing, and then there was another guy in the band who played trumpet and accordion, and he had my Roland uh, clone wheel, and he would play organ and occasionally other keyboard sounds on that. Um, so we would set up, I would be on one side of the stage and he would kind of be on the other. Um, and we were doing a song of mine. Uh, it was a song called spilling down all over the place, uh, which has a lot of time signature changes and a lot of distracting things. And I remember first I, I missed a time signature change while I was singing. I got lost in the form of the song. And then I remember things we got back on track. But there was a lot of hubbub around it. And and after the show, I said, I'm really sorry. I, I missed that part. And it seemed like thing I really threw you guys off. And he said, oh, no, like, yes, you did. But that wasn't what happened. So what had happened was across the stage for me, uh, the uh, the other keyboard player was, you know, pounding on the on the organ, which was on uh, a, a less than sturdy X stand. <laughs> and so in the middle of, while I'm distracted by forgetting lyrics and, and missing form changes, uh, this stand collapses and the organ just starts falling down. Uh, Mandy's on that side of the stage and she and the other keyboard player catch it. And all of this is happening while we're playing spilling down all over the place. Uh, <laughs> and we made it through the song, but I just, I, I, I'm glad I don't have to, live through that again but i do wish there was some sort of video so i could watch what was happening as i was distracted forgetting how my own song goes the keyboards falling to the ground two band members are trying to keep it from smashing into the stage and get it back upright and get the stand set up and locked in uh that's that's one of the best uh, moments of onstage chaos that i can remember <laughs> and you've answered my question because i was about to say I, I have to do some deeper research and find video but it sounds like there is no video proof hopefully not that's early enough in my uh <laughs> in, in my gigging history that i don't think it might have even been before everyone had a phone oh, that could yeah. take video at every gig so <laughs> 
I, I love how you were so caught up in your own mayhem that you didn't notice the mayhem going on across the other side of the stage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, I think I started I started wearing my glasses on stage not long after that. It was like, <laughs> oh, I can I can see if the horn section's looking at me now. I, got <laughs> it. <laughs> so tell us, Sam, and obviously the 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 upcoming short to medium term future is a little bit uncertain for all of us sure. in the music world with, with what's going on. But to the best that you can, are you able to let us know what's on the horizon for you musically in, in the next year, 18 months? Sure. Um, well, you know, as we, we're still not at the point where any of my bands have been getting together, you know, more than, you know, other than some outside, you know, hello, how's it going? Um, you know, we've all been still mostly in quarantine and haven't been going inside and practicing music together yet. So I'm looking forward to when we can start doing that again, even if gigging is still a number of months away. Um, I'm very happy to be putting a home studio together so we can keep working on writing and, and uh, recording new music. Uh, but in the coming months, we're hoping we have Noon 15 has a few more tracks from our Finish What You Started project um, that I'm hoping we'll be able to release. They all just need sort of a few little overdubs and mixing and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm hoping uh, by the end of the year, there will be two or three more of those tracks will come out and they'll be accompanied by a podcast episode and a YouTube video. Um, and, you know, you can subscribe to either of those and just get the things we release as we release them. Um, through spectrums, uh, we'll be releasing our next full length album, hopefully before the end of the year. Uh, it's, it needs to be mastered, but otherwise it's, it's ready to go. We just have to figure out if we want to release it before we can properly go out and promote it live. Mm. Um, but I'm very excited about that. It's my favorite thing that band has ever done. Uh, and I've been more involved in the writing and even with some of the lyrics and I, I, I sing a lot of vocal harmonies on this record. I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah, mostly, uh, so those are the big projects that I'm looking at and, and I'm really, since we might not be able to gig for quite a few months yet, um, hoping to just keep writing and find exciting new ways to release music, maybe do more live streaming. Um, we've, Mandy and I have done a, a few live streams since lockdown began and it's fun um, and we've been glad to be able to do that, but um, I'm hoping to be able to do it with some more musicians before too long so we can at least, you know, uh, have that feedback to, to share with mm. people. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But we've got a lot to work on in the meantime. And uh, it's a, the world is, is crazy out there right mm. now, especially here in the States. Um, there's yeah. a lot going on. There but, um, you know, it's always... Uh, uh, I feel like in in challenging times we have sort of responsibility as artists to create art that reflects and speaks to that um you know and sometimes I, I quarantine has been both a boon for creativity and also uh a such a, a really put a clamp down it can be just like just got to get through the day because everything is so insane like how can i sit down and write a song um but I'm just, you know, hoping to, to use that in, in a way that's that's positive for more people and use what what powers I have for good, you know. So yeah. uh, just try to go with it one day at a time, but looking forward to, to putting out the music that I've been working on and hopefully keep the ball rolling and uh, put more good things up to the world. Yeah, and well put. And I mean, you're, the quarantine situation is a bit like being on a, 
an island of the non-desert um, variety, which is my <laughs> my lame attempt to segue to the last question, which is desert uh-huh. island discs. So okay, now it's time for you to outlay those five albums you couldn't live without. All right, and uh, you know, as I'm sure all your guests feel that picking just five is impossible. Yeah. Uh, but I I tried to pick five really good ones. <laughs> so. Uh, let's see. Five, just five. All right. So first, I'm going to go with uh, Rubber Soul by the Beatles, right. which is, uh, you know, maybe not their most groundbreaking record or, you know, I, I not what I would call their greatest record, um, but one that has always just been one of my favorites as far as songwriting and creativity. And it's just one that's always, uh, always connected with me. I, I love Rubber yeah. Soul. I can put it on at any time. Uh, so that one I'll, I'll put first. Um, 11, 17, 70, uh, Elton John's first live album oh, yeah. from his first tour of the U S which is just a piano trio. And it, it's the first time Mandy heard it. She said, Oh, this is what you stole everything you do from. <laughs> and it's, it's true. Uh, I, I, it's, and it's, it's a great way. It's great to hear Elton John sounding like he has something to prove because yeah. he's been so legendary for so long. Uh, he's always been a great performer, but uh, for so much of his career, he's been coming at it from being on top already. And I just, I love the, the there's a vibrancy and uh, a hunger to the performances on that album that have continued to inspire me. Uh, he's, so, he's, he's just a super hit prediction based on no knowledge whatsoever. I think Elton uh-huh. will announce he's no longer retiring after having to spend three to six months in quarantine. <laughs> He'll realize it's not for him and he's never retiring. There's my prediction. I, uh, he's, he's, uh, an unstoppable force. Yes. Uh, we, we got to see him, uh, my wife and I saw him in, in Cleveland, uh, on his farewell tour and I'd seen him a few times before and it's just amazing. I, I hope, I hope when I'm in my seventies that I'm still having that much fun performing. That's right. Uh, that's, that's the, the, uh, what more could one ask for? Uh, third, I'm going to say, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, the original concept album from before it was a stage show, um, which, you know, I've mentioned that I, I, uh, have a background in writing for the theater and there's, it's, I, I feel like it's the perfect combination of, uh, you know, story arc and, and narrative and orchestrated music with a, a gritty rock band right. and, and performers who know how to play that. Uh, I think uh, Alan Spenner from the, you know, it's a lot of Joe Cocker's band from that period that that plays on that record. And, and Alan Spenner is one of the most amazing bass players I've ever heard. He can do so much with two chords that's kind of unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's a great record that combines a lot of my favorite yeah. things about music in one place. Uh, I think the best version of that material and the best thing that Andrew Lloyd Webber ever did yes, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's my stance on that. Um, fourth, I'm going to say uh, what's going on by Marvin Gaye, which oh, is another sort of conceptual work that's just musically excellent and, and uh, you know, lyrically and, and in its, its approach to, to addressing current events, uh, just a real masterwork. Um, again, incredible bass playing from James Jamerson and Bob Babin on it, but Marvin Gaye's voice is just so touching and and powerful. And really, you know, it's going on 50 years old. But if you're reading the news, I mean, it's I feel like it's 
as relevant or yeah. more relevant now than it was when it came out in 1971. Um, that's right. So that's, I've been thinking about that record a lot and, and taking some inspiration from it. It's a classic. And fifth, I want those are all from the 60s and 70s. So I wanted to give at least one that's a little more contemporary. Um, so I'm going to shout out Wolfpack um, Thrill of the Arts, which is their first full length uh because they've been they've been such an inspiration to me the last few years again in just doing exactly what they want to do uh, not worrying about having you know the the best equipment or or doing everything so it looks quote unquote professional just embracing their DIY aesthetic and being goofy and silly and not apologizing for who they are and that's been a great uh mm-hmm ongoing reminder for me like just make the music you want to make and be who you are and and find your people and don't worry so much about trying to conform to oh this is what you have to do in order to be accepted um it's a good lesson for life as well as for for music and uh yeah Wolfpack's one of those bands that that always reminds me that you you can just do whatever and you don't have to wait until you're you have the money or the uh the fame and and notoriety to get away with it That's just right. get away with it <laughs> yeah i'd love to see them live i've only seen a couple of videos but they're amazing yeah i i caught them uh i guess going on two years ago now in in brooklyn and just such a fun show people switching instruments and uh, there's a lot of sort of improv comedy intertwined with their performance but they're also such great musicianship yeah. and uh yeah i love it i love i love that they bring that to the table and say hey this can be part of the experience we don't all have to take ourselves quite so seriously but we can take the musicianship seriously exactly no extremely good pick sam um thank you so much for taking part in this it's it's been an absolute pleasure and um yeah i I think um i know i'm looking forward to and i I believe i'm okay speaking for you paul we're very much looking forward to seeing those next two albums come come out and um absolutely seeing things go from strength to greater strength well, um, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really, uh, I, I'm, I'm touched and honored to be, uh, probably like the, the, uh, least renowned keyboard player to be on your show. So <laughs> not at all, <laughs> but I uh, know uh, I appreciate it. And I, I have such a ball talking about this stuff and I, uh, I appreciate you having me. Pleasure's all ours. And there we have it. Oh, look, I always say they're a great interview, not because I'm a good interviewer or you're a good interviewer, although you are, but more because I enjoy spe- speaking with the guests. But yeah, I enjoyed that. And it's obvious um, Samuel's a bit passionate about where he lives and what he does. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, full disclosure, Sam and I have, have known each other for a little while on social media. Through the, through the amazing music player network and and uh, I knew he was a good bloke before we started up so uh, it was really nice to, to have him as a guest on our podcast and can I just say this Dave for anyone listening if you haven't heard noon 15 um, my first time hearing them I was absolutely blown away and I rushed out and bought their album straight away yeah. and, you know these days buying albums isn't that expensive right so please just give it a, give it a bit of a listen I think Sam and his band are brilliant yeah, and I will link to the uh, band's uh, pages. It's Bandcamp from memory. Um, on on the sh- in the show notes. So yeah, look out for that if you. Not that they're hard to find. It's a cool name as well. 
Um, so there we go. So the Keyboard Chronicles will be back again in a fortnight or so, possibly even a little bit less, just as a little bit of a hint. But just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Um, first one I actually want to talk about is we have set up a Patreon. So turn off now if you don't want to be solicited. Um, we are we have set up a Patreon just to help fund the running costs of the podcast. So as, as much as Paul and I are hoping to buy our own jets um, to go and do interviews face-to-face, we're not, we're not silly. Uh, it's more about covering the cost of the podcast. Um, so if for some reason you did want to support us, um, we are at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Um, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Um, we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. And as always, if you like good old fashioned email, then drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. So a huge thank you again, Paul, to joining me again this episode. And I do believe you'll be back next episode with us. Yeah, can't wait. And again, thanks for having me. It's an absolute honour and a privilege to be part of. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening and hope to see you back here next episode. Mm